The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. Turn with me to the Epistle of Hebrews, if you will, chapter 7. It says, starting in verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, um, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider this, how great this man was, unto whom the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here are men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth him of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And so... And as, excuse me, I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Um, Throughout the uh, book of Hebrews, the writer Paul tries to elaborate on this theme of the superiority of the gospel era. The superiority of the kingdom of God as it's instituted uh, in the New Testament age. The superiority of Christianity to the Old Testament law. The superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to every figure that the Jews uh, revered. Um, you know, to be a Hebrew believer, this is who this is addressed to, Hebrews. You know, people who converted from being Jews to following the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a difficult thing to do yeah. these days. Um, you know, if you had turned your back on your family, your friends, your acquaintances, your community, um, and you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, you know, most people didn't have a corporate job that they went to like we have today. They uh, were merchants or tradesmen or involved in the exchange economy in some way or another. I mean, you might lose customers. You might lose people willing to give you their hard-earned money to do business with you. I mean, it will affect your, could affect your livelihood when they know that you rejected the Old Testament law and you're following after this new heresy. Um, you, uh, your family... Uh, could turn their back on you, want nothing to do with you. Friends that you have had your whole life could turn their back on you and want nothing to do with you. Um, and um, even in many cases, you could be in physical danger. 
I mean, later in this same um, epistle, uh, the, the apostle uh, talks about people, these, some of these believers who have took the spoiling of their goods cheerfully. I mean, so it was a difficult thing to do. Um, and so he is reiterating things that they should already know, but to encourage them to continue in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they might be tempted after all of these things. I mean, I've got a person with fairly thick skin, but you, you're dealing with things like that day in and day out. I mean, that would be hard to endure. I can sympathize with these people. I mean, uh, that would be hard. Um, and maybe they are tempted. I mean, it's a lie from the devil, but maybe they're tempted to think, all these things have happened to me <laughs> since I made this change in my life. You know, maybe I should just go back and be like these, be like everybody else. You know, is this really the right way? That is a temptation that the devil would hang over them because to their mind, they might think, man, my life is so hard. So they need some encouragement. And the encouragement the apostle gives them here is the superiority of the gospel, superiority of Christ, superiority of the kingdom of God to the Old Testament law. He talks in chapter 1 about how Christ is superior to the angels and how he, later on how he's superior uh, to Moses, you know, the most revered religious figure to that hitherto to the Jewish people, um, how his priesthood is uh, superior. He introduces that several chapters before and elaborates uh, a little bit about why that, or a lot more, about why that is in the chapter that we've chosen to read tonight. Um, and so <clears throat> they need encouragement, just like we need encouragement. Now, we don't mind not need encouragement in the sense of proving these truths to us, but we need encouragement, right? We, that's why we're here tonight, uh, is we need encouragement. We need to be reminded of... Um, the great, to, you know, extrapolate uh, from our text, our great high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ, um, that we've got someone that we can turn to, that we can pour out our heart to, that we can come boldly to his throne of grace. And, um, and the basis of why that is, and that's some things, uh, some of what the apostle is talking about here. Um, so here, this chapter, he's talking about the priesthood of Jesus Christ and its superiority. Uh, he introduces a figure named Melchizedek and says that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is a priest after his um, pattern, after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, there's a similitude in the way in which they're priests <clears throat> that uh, he wants to draw this lesson from. But before we uh, go much further, we need to go uh, investigate from the scriptures um, who this Melchizedek figure was, and we'll go from there. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Now there's been a big regional war. A bunch of kings <laughs> make war against some more kings, and Abraham's nephew Lot is taken captive. And Abraham, or Abram at this time, of course we know that to be uh, the same individual before God has changed his name, he goes, uh, and one of the more uh, probably overlooked exploits of faith probably in this early part of the Bible, I mean, we don't know how big these armies are. We don't know how many people are involved. I mean, there's just been a regional war, a world war, I mean, you know, based on the population, you know, and where it was dispersed at that time. I mean, it would probably be a pretty accurate description. Uh, 
and the victors have taken the spoils and they've taken his nephew and he goes and takes only 318 trained servants and he goes and wins a great victory uh, by the blessings of the Lord. Um, and as he's coming back, we read this in verse 18. After winning his victory, he's gotten spoil and treasure. He's rescued Lot. It says in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Um, so Melchizedek, we have a figure. It's described as the priest of the Most High God, and he came and puts a, a blessing of Abraham. Uh, pronounces a blessing on Abraham and Abraham gives him a tenth of what he's just won in this great victory and that's all we read about this figure that's it, he's there, he pops up and he disappears from the pages of scripture <clears throat> then he reappears in the Psalms 110th Psalm verse 4 uh, where the scripture writes I've swore and will not repent thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, you know, you could imagine the Old Testament Jews who had read that in generations thereafter being very confused, perhaps, about what that actually meant. And we're next introduced to him in the Epistle of Hebrews. Uh, earlier in this book, and in by far the most depth in this chapter. So who is this mysterious figure that comes on the scene? Uh, I'm flip back here and bookmark that or try to and then flip back to Hebrews. <clears throat> we read this about him. He says <clears throat> he's first being interpretation verse 2. King of righteousness and after that king of Salem which is king of peace without father, mother, descent having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like unto the son of God abideth a priest continually. Um, first we want to look at this description of him being the priest of the Most High God as, he, as it's told there in Genesis 14 and we're told here that the Lord Jesus Christ is a priest after that order. The order of Melchizedek. Now before, when, when this thing take when this episode takes place. Um, you've got to remember, there is no priesthood. There's no Levitical priesthood. There's no Israelites. There's no Hebrews as such. Um, there's a Abraham has not even had his promised heir. That's still years in the future. So there's no Isaac. There's no Jacob. There's no tribes. There's no tribe of Levi. There's no priesthood as the Jews Hebrews understood it. But yet this man, Melchizedek, mysterious figure, is described as the priest, priest of the Most High God, and um, he is pronouncing this blessing from God upon Abraham at this point after he's returning from the battle, and then he is giving in the Old Testament uh, uh, command thereafter um, an offering of tithes, Abraham is, to this priest, Melchizedek. Uh, so we know that this priesthood is not from the uh, Levitical line. That is the point that the writer here is making. Um, that he's not, that, um, that Jesus Christ is not 
from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, and his, he's a priest of God, and he's a priest of God after the order of Melchizedek, which means his priesthood comes directly from God, God alone. And that's the sense in which he's a priest of the Most High God. But this man, Melchizedek, is a mysterious character. Uh, we have a, in the genealogy branching after the flood, we don't find any mention of a Melchizedek. Um, you know, you would think somebody who's this king, right, this priest, this figure uh, of such great importance that you would, you would find him, he would be a prominent individual. We find he's not there. He's not in uh, this lineage of the genealogy of the early scriptures at all. And that makes him mysterious. And then he's described in these terms, king, priest. Um, and then we find here in Hebrews, he's a strong type or figure of Jesus Christ. Uh, so who is Melchizedek? That's kind of the million-dollar question. And um, you know, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to not give. I'm going to kind of plead the fifth on that tonight. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about it for a while, uh, but I want to emphasize the fact that I don't think we can definitively say uh, 100% uh, who Melchizedek was. And I don't want us to get bogged down on that. The more important things is the great pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can draw from Melchizedek. So who was he? We don't find him, in the, of course, in the genealogy at all. Uh, but he's got this such a great importance. And this entire chapter, parts of others, are devoted to this, improving the superiority of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a school of thought. Uh, I want to read this real quick uh, and notice this again. Verse 3, it says, Without father, without mother, without descent, having beginning of days nor end of life, but made uh, like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now that's an interesting description, right? Without father, without mother, without descent, beginning or an end. Yeah, that's different, isn't it? Yeah. It requires a lot of thinking. Um, so this, there's some mystery here. There's some people who think Melchizedek, while obviously portraying these important principles about uh, the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, some of which more which we'll get into here hopefully in a moment, uh, some of which think he's an angelic figure, an angel. That's a one line of thinking. Uh, there are certain parts of this that that would fit. Others that personally I think fit a lot less, but that's one school of thought. That he's an angel. That's why he doesn't have a. That's why he doesn't have a descent, you know, in the scriptures, and that's why he um, uh, is described in this way. Um, there's also others who think this is a uh, pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Um, a Christophany, I think, is the technical term for that. Is that right, Brother Jeff? Yes. Okay, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know these happen in Scripture. I mean, there are wonder, there's, there's some wonderful accounts of that we can find in the Scripture. Uh, we find Jacob, uh, when he was so troubled about his meeting with his brother, he wrestled with a man, you know, all night to the breaking of the day that uh, was so powerful that he, you know, just took one touch, put his hip out of joint. And at the end of that encounter, what does he say? He said, I have seen God face to face and lived. And then uh, we've got the account of the three Hebrew children uh, in Babylon who their stand of faith, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, 
and it was heated up seven times harder than normal and consumed even the people that Nebuchadnezzar had instructed and tasked with throwing them in there. And lo, after a while, the king looks and he says, have we not thrown three men in this fire? And he said, yeah. They say, yeah, of course we did. And he said, I, they are all loosed and walking about. But there's four in there, and the fourth is like the son of man, the son of God. So I think that's another. Uh, I think uh, the Lord Jesus Christ came and appeared uh, to Abraham on the plains of Mamre when there's three men that come and talk to him that day. Um, but one of them, I mean, these are obviously appearances that would appear to be angels, but one of these, one of these three was no angel. When Sarah laughed to him, laughed within herself, within her mind, with the promise of, um, of the man that they would return, he would return and he, she would have a child, she laughed within himself and he asked the question, why did Sarah laugh? I mean, look into the very heart of her. Um, there's perhaps others like the uh, angelic, as it would appear, figure who appeared to Manoah and his wife in uh, Judges chapter 13 when uh, they asked his name. He said, why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is secret, it's the same word translated wonderful in uh, that great prophecy of Isaiah 9 and 6, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these are wonderful uh, um, accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And not as the flesh and blood incarnation that would come later, but appearing as it would be. Uh, and it would seem human form as he appeared to his saints. So that's one. That certainly um, is the most literal, uh, you know, because Jesus Christ certainly is the fulfillment of what this is pointing to. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He doesn't have a father. He doesn't have a mother. There's a lot of people who think that, but then there's also yet other people who um, think that this is Shem, the son of the, uh, the father, rather, of the, all the Semitic peoples. You know, one of the three sons of Noah, this was the direct ancestors of all the post-flood population, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Abraham was one of the people that descended from Shem. Um, and when you look at these, this, um, this language, you know, without father, mother, descent, or beginning of days or end of life. Now, for that to be any historical figure, that has to, you know, anybody, any way you want to look at it, um, if it's not a supernatural figure, in other words, it's not an angel, it's not the Lord Jesus Christ himself, there has to be some symbolicness right. to, those, to that language more than literal. Otherwise, it doesn't fit, right? Because uh, it can't be a historical figure and you not have a beginning and you not have an end, right? Uh, you not have a father, you not have a mother, okay? Um, so the argument are the... Uh, the People take that point, say, of course, and we're not going to get into it. There's a lot more than we're going to just try to hit really tidy tonight and, and concisely sum up. Um, is that this language describes a figure who is can be described as kind of a timeless figure to the descendants right. of uh, the uh, Semitic peoples that came from him. Uh, Shem, of course, he lived before the flood. He, he's the father of all those groups of people after the flood. He outlived everyone of his uh, direct ancestors. He lived so long, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Abraham only outlived him. A number of generations after for, by only 25 years. So among, amongst all those family groups that descended from him, he would certainly be like he's been around forever and he's not going anywhere, you know, in a manner of speaking. So the argument, of course, that this is kind of a figure of speech and idiom, I mean, the Bible does use that, right. you know, uh, throughout the scriptures. I want to point that out. Um, 
on a number of occasions. Um, and in that way, it's not the literal, but pointing to these truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as I said, what do I think? I'm not going to give you definitive answer. Yeah. I, uh, you know, because I, I don't know. I say that, you know, we don't, I don't know that we have enough scripture um, to say definitively. Right. I mean, you know, there's arguments for each of those, you know, that have validity, some perhaps more than others. Um, you know, and I've gone between a, you know, between a couple throughout my ministry, uh, you know, the one I've leaned toward. Um, but if you had to pin me down, I would say the last, that this is Sham, the father of the uh, Semitic peoples. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but one of the biggest is probably the fact that Jewish scholarship and Jewish tradition holds that Melchizedek is Sham, right. which to me carries a lot of weight. It's not scripture, but it carries a lot of weight based on how accurate they have been on a lot of things. And also just the interaction here, historically, that this is, doesn't seem to be a stranger. I mean, you know, he's coming and, you know, this interaction seems to be people, there for, he's familiar with him and vice versa for this to really make a lot of sense historically. But again, don't get bogged down in that. I say there's mystery here. Uh, it's, but the most important point is what this points to about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great high priest that's after the order of Melchizedek and the, the wonderful truths that we can learn from him. So this mysterious figure comes on the scene and he comes and he blesses Abram at this time of his life. And here later on in the scriptures, we see that Jesus Christ is a high priest like Melchizedek. Um, in whichever way they're true with the, with the Melchizedek figure who came into Abram's uh, way that day, we know that Jesus Christ was truly without father, was truly without mother, without descent, beginning of days, nor end of life. Because we know that the Jesus of Nazareth who lived upon this earth was the very uh, God of very God who was from eternity past, who made the heavens and earth and everything therein and condescended to our lowest state to save guilty sinners. Um, you, he didn't have an earthly father. He didn't have an earthly mother in the sense most humans do, right? He had uh, much more of a mother than a father as it, you know, with the virgin birth, but not uh, the way every other human being does. Uh, he was God who was manifest in the flesh. He was God, the same God who, uh, as we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and there's nothing that made, was made that He didn't make. So that was Jesus Christ from all eternity the one that was born in Bethlehem and uh, took upon him this priesthood. <clears throat> we go back to verse 2 and he says that he is king of righteousness and king of Salem. <clears throat> king of righteousness. Jesus Christ certainly is the epitome of the king of righteousness. Righteousness does not exist in this planet. True righteousness described scripturally unless it sprung from and was the and was an instrument of Jesus Christ and his grace. If it's true righteousness, this comes from Jesus Christ. Amen. It came becomes because the work of the Lord in the hearts of his children. 
And it's not because, of course, anything that we did by nature, by, of our own accord, anything that we did by our works, anything of merit, it was by divine grace. He's the king of righteousness. You know, man was hopeless, but Jesus Christ came uh, to fulfill the, righteous, the righteousness of God's law. And because of that, we're, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He's the king of righteousness. He's going to reign in heaven. He's reigning now, of course. He's reigned for eternity in a, uh, as well. But he's going to reign um, in heaven as part of the new heavens and new earth of his redeemed people okay, yeah. as king of righteousness. And the message we'll be seeing is we had no hope <laughs> except for this king of righteousness. Yeah. There's a lot more that we can obviously say to that. Then he goes on to say king of Salem, which means king of peace. <clears throat> king of peace. What time are we looking at here? Okay. You know, I don't think that, that, that putting them in the scriptures, putting them in that order is a coincidence. <laughs> right? Because righteousness always comes before peace in the scriptures. There must be righteousness before there can be peace. Amen. You know, we can't have peace with God as guilty sinners unless God's demand of righteousness is satisfied. Uh, God, the penalty for sin had to be um, uh, paid, had to be laid upon the Lord, Jesus Christ, um, and that His righteousness had to be imputed to us before the Lord would ever look upon us as being reconciled to him and the problem of sin put away. Now I realize, in a sense, of course, because of election, God, you know, has always viewed it as done, you know, because God can't fail. But it took Jesus Christ literally in the flesh coming and paying the sin debt, okay, and fulfilling that righteousness. Because, of course, the God we serve, there was no chance it could ever do anything uh, but be fulfilled, of course. But... For, there, uh, for, uh, for, for us to be have peace, for God to uh, be able to accept us as his children, the penalty of sin had to be reconciled. Righteousness had come before peace. God's mercy is not given at the expense of his law. Right. I mean, his law will be satisfied. It's just on our back, it's because on, on our account, Jesus Christ paid that sin debt. And he satisfied... Um, um, God's wrath for sin. For those that aren't God, they'll have to stand before Him and answer for the breaking of His law. <clears throat> so, righteousness, God's law uh, of righteousness must be fulfilled before we can have peace. And aren't we thankful that our high priest did that on our behalf? Um, so, As, as he's writing to these Hebrews, um, and he's explaining to them how the priesthood of the Lord Jesus is superior to, to what they've always known prior to their conversion. And of course, I, I, I suppose this is a secondary, perhaps, um, uh, aim of the epistle, but also to perhaps um, help 
with the Lord's blessing, of course, and opening their eyes, some other Hebrews who might read this or might have uh, exposure to these arguments in his reading uh, about why they should be looking <laughs> to the Lord Jesus Christ and not what they've always uh, clung to religiously. <clears throat> it seems quite obvious to us living here from the um, perspective of the 21st century that this should be obvious why this is so much better, why this is the what they should do. You know, but sometimes it wasn't that simple. The vast majority of Hebrews rejected the gospel, rejected the Lord. Now, not all of those weren't God's children. The Bible scripturally has a lot of evidence to show that. There were many of them that certainly are going to be and those thereafter amongst the Hebrews are certainly going to be in heaven enjoying <laughs> and, uh, the blessings of, of, of what Jesus has done and worshiping that king of righteousness one day. Um, but have you ever tried to convince somebody uh, to accept your line of thinking when they've been, uh, I guess, indoctrinated or, or taught uh, for many, many years something that's the complete opposite, and that's ingrained in their mind? To try to convince them otherwise can be a, a hard task. In fact, it can be nigh impossible in some cases unless the Lord is in the matter. Uh, and so that was sadly the case. Uh, but it seems obvious to us, though, from our perspective of, you know, the, the Lord, the God himself in the person of Jesus Christ visited this planet. So certainly you would expect a great... Reformation, a great change with how religion is conducted after this takes place. I mean, would you expect if God visited the planet, you know, logically speaking, for everything to just go on the way it's always gone on before, uh, for people to just worship the way they've always worshipped, you know, for, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't. You would think you would... The obvious logical answer is, of course, that there would be this great <laughs> sea change if something momentous like this happened. But there's many people that needed uh, not only convincing, but in the case of even these Hebrew believers, right, who have uh, their eyes have been blessed to see this truth, they needed to be encouraged and reminded and reiterated about this. Um, and why all these things were of course ordained by God, but they were deliberately set as being inferior and to be replaced with what they have now, with what Paul, with what Paul and the other apostles have preached, which is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, in the Old Testament day, you know, religion with regard to proximity to God was a distant affair. You remember the, uh, the scene uh, around the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. I mean, all the thunderings and the lightnings and the wake and, and that great display of God's power. And in fact, they're told, you don't need to go even though near the mountain. Your animals and your livestock don't need to go near the mountain. You're all going to die, you know. Um, and then you had the uh, tabernacle of the congregation within the camp. But, of course, you know, the ordinary person can't go in there. 
You know, just the priest could go into the uh, sanctuary and only the high priest could go into the holiest of holies. So that was a distance, you know, compared to what we enjoy now for the average person. Now, we're, you know, we read of all these saints in the Old Testament and their great exploits of faith, many of which, you know, uh, we need a whole lot more people like that today. Yeah. You know, uh, they have, in many cases, are much more impressive uh, than many other people, even from, you know, thereafter. But they didn't, um, but religion was different. <laughs> there was a distance between the average person and God with regard to their understanding of religion. Right. Uh, the worship was conducted largely through intermediaries like the priests. Uh, and in our day, the Lord Jesus Christ, he tells us the book of Revelations has made, of Revelation, has made us kings and priests to God. Uh, you know, that um, separation, that distance has been um, taken away through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and because of what he's done for us spiritually, what he's done for us redemptively, he's instituted a kingdom, a new covenant. He talks about that a lot in the next chapter of Hebrews. A new covenant of service based on an everlasting covenant of what Jesus has done for us. That now we have this priest who he, not, he is um, the fulfillment of what all of those Old Testament um, sacrifices and offerings pointed to. He was the Lamb of God who came and was the sin offering. I mean, he was... The blood of the Lamb sprinkled to the holiest of holies, and he was the high priest also offering. Yes. He was also the tabernacle, symbolically himself. That represents his incarnation and his flesh. There are several scriptures that can point to that. We won't read uh, those uh, in their entirety, but one that uh, comes to mind um, is uh, when Jesus took his, uh, his uh, disciples up to the Temple Mount. And he said, destroy this, and in three days I will raise it up again. And they were confused, of course. You know, it took all these decades to build this. How are you going to raise it up in three days? And they said they know not, knew not that he spake of the temple of his body. You know, the temple is just a permanent incarnation of what the tabernacle was back in the wilderness. So, I mean, so Jesus Christ, he's the tabernacle, representatively. He's the high priest. He's the offering. It's all of Jesus Christ. And he's point, and, he, and this is to, to show them the superiority of the, pre, of the true high priest. <laughs> One that had a priesthood like Melchizedek. It wasn't like that what they'd always known, but it was from God himself. And just like their father Abraham, you know, Abraham, who was almost an idol amongst them. Okay? Um, he's showing picture, pic, uh, how symbolically... <clears throat> of the symbolism of when Abraham was coming back from this slaughter of the kings, he comes and he pays tithes to this figure Melchizedek, and that's representing the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. He's saying that Abraham is teaching you that lesson. <laughs> the scripture through Abraham is teaching you that lesson. If this is the one for you to follow. This is the one who all of those things that the Lord promised and instituted was pointing to. This is the better way. This is the way it was always meant to be. That's what he's trying to put forth. And um, I want to um, look at just a couple of other things before we bring these thoughts to a close. Um,
regardless of these, what I would say more theological uh, things that we've tried to look at in typologies, types and figures, um, in this interaction between Abraham or Abram of course, and uh, Melchizedek, um, not only is this, does he picture these things about the king of peace, the king of righteousness, you know, the, the eternal uh, sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, uh, the, um, the uh, priesthood, eternal priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, we read here that Melchizedek, he comes and brings the blessings of bread and wine to Abraham. And he blesses him. Okay. And this shows Jesus Christ in this most important way. And this is as important as anything I've said so far tonight. Is that Jesus Christ, the, Lord, the great high priest, our great priest, high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes and he seeks us out and he finds us and he meets us where we are. Amen. We just don't go looking for him and find him. He comes and seeks us and he finds us. Every object of his grace. You don't just wake up one day and you all of a sudden get the desire to follow after the things of God and reject the things that you've done before of your, of your own free will and ability. This doesn't happen. Because by nature, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, and it can't be. Neither indeed can be. won't ever happen. It doesn't have the ability to. Um, now, I would argue that every human being in the image of God has a sense of a conscience. Yes. But it's not the same as after somebody's touched by the grace of Amen. God. They don't interpret, just like everybody understands intrinsically there's a creator. Romans 1 tells us that. But many people deny it and rebel against it. But they don't interpret, the, uh, they're capable of remorse. There's a lot of people who are remorseful when they're staring at a hundred, uh, life in prison in the pen in the confession room. They're real remorseful, right? You, some people would say, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about in conscious in the sense, changed by the Spirit of God that interprets sin as a sin, as a transgression against God's law, and standing before the bar of God's justice. That's the difference. That's the difference. <clears throat> People don't just wake up one day and they decide <laughs> to desire God. Right. They desire God because the Lord Jesus changes their heart through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the new birth. And that happens some point in every child of God's life, some point in their life. And that is when they desire the things of God, when they see things differently. Amen. They didn't come looking for the Lord. The Lord came and found them. Right. You know, I remember I'm thinking about the words of David in, in the 40th Psalm. You know, when he brought, he says that he's brought me up out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay and um, has set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. That's where we were. Um, and uh, in uh, De uh, Deuteronomy 32, where um, he's teaching a lesson about. Uh, the nation of Israel through Jacob as a picture of the Lord's elect people. He says he's found Jacob in a wait in a desert land, in a waste howling wilderness, and he led him and instructed him and kept him as the apple of his eye. That's where we were at. Yes. But the Lord comes and meets his children through divine grace, through the gift of his Holy Spirit. 
that he directs to change and regenerate them. At some point in their life, he comes and he meets them with that blessing. At his own time, by his own power. And he brings forth Melchizedek. Bread and wine. Bread and wine. And, and, that, and the Lord continues to do that and will to the end of the world. The gospel will feed the souls of God's people. Amen. Those of which you place importance to. <clears throat> you know, many times the Lord has fed me. <laughs> Just like Melchizedek walked and brought bread and wine to Abraham. Of course, those are theological pictures, of course, of the body right. the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, they're symbolic there with regard to how we serve the Lord. He comes and He gives us spiritual meat and drinks to sustain us and bless us in His kingdom. We need that. I hope that's why we're here today. That's why I hope we're at every time we go to the Lord's house. is that we hope the Lord will come down and give us sustenance spiritually. Because we need those things as we uh, soldier here in this world. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.